Quick, come up with something funny to say. Hello? Yo. Bort. Oh, that's really cool. Somehow I think you're lying. Uh-huh. Oh, fail. Oh. Bad Philosophy, episode 52, recorded on November 15th, 2009. A fictional pair of ducks. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. One, two, Bad Philosophy. Upsetting the balance of reality one rabbit trail at a time, and we're here for episode 52, here with a brand new guest of the show today, someone who has never been on Bad Philosophy before, but actually has heard about it through the grapevine here in the philosophy department at Texas Tech, uh, Dr. Darren Hick. Uh, thank you, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so, first time on BF, tell us a little bit about yourself and why we should care. Um, you probably shouldn't. I'm a visiting assistant professor at Tech. Uh, I specialize in aesthetics, ethics, and metaphysics. Uh, most of my work right now is focusing on problems in copyright and intellectual property. But uh, in a nutshell, uh, I'm an aesthetician. Okay. Uh, which means for all the lay people out there? I work in philosophy of art. Mm. Cool beans indeed. And speaking of art, uh, we have our own uh, budding artist slash theoretician slash whatever else. Uh, Kevin Saunders, coming at us from Oxford, Ohio. How are you doing, Kevin? Uh, I'm still alive. <laughs> Always more every day. Um, well, we're glad to have uh, both of you gentlemen on the show today. And uh, we're actually going to talk about something that uh, has probably been touched on in the past with our, our discussions of um, various television shows and uh, works of Neil Stevenson, perhaps. But it is the paradox of fiction. And... I'm just going to let Dr. Hick introduce it because it's a problem in aesthetics, right? Yep. And uh, being an aesthetician, I, I believe you would be best suited to introduce the topic. So, sure. Dr. Hick, what is the paradox of fiction? Well, the paradox of fiction is actually a bit of a misnomer. It's not uh, a paradox in the classical sense. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, it arises from a clash between three premises. So these are arranged in different ways depending on who's talking about the problem. But it's a problem about our emotional reactions to fiction. So the first premise is we believe that the objects of our emotions exist. So if we're having an emotional reaction, it's to something that we believe exists. Second premise is that we know that fictional objects aren't real. Mm -hmm. We know there's no real Anna Karenina. We know there's no real Superman. But, and this is where the third problem comes in, we have strong emotional reactions to fictions. Hmm. So we are... Um, sad about the fate of Anna Karenina. Uh, we're, we're scared of Michael Myers. We admire Batman. Things like this. Well, this would seem to be a problem. It seems like our beliefs are in conflict. Hmm. So we believe in the objects of our emotions. We know that fictional objects don't exist, but we're having strong emotional reactions to fiction. Whether they're things in books, on TV, movies, plays, what have you, it seems that what draws us to fiction is the strong emotional reaction. So the question is how to do away with the paradox. So it's a paradox in the sense that we could accept that we're just being irrational, mm -hmm. right? Uh, <laughs> this is an option, and it's an option that the paradox goes way back to Plato and perhaps before. Um, Plato says we're just out of our minds. Mm -hmm. Allegory of the cave, right? I mean, this is... Uh, it's, it's actually earlier than that. It comes out of the ion. Oh, wow. Even earlier than the Republic. It, indeed. Hmm. So uh, this is taken up again in a contemporary setting by a British philosopher, I think he's British, Colin Radford, mm -hmm. uh, who poses the problem, runs through a couple of 
possible solutions, things that seem rational but don't seem to work, and he gives up, throws up his hands, and says, well, I guess we're irrational. <laughs> <laughs> Which wouldn't be that hard to accept. I mean, uh, we're, we're plenty irrational most of the time in, in various other means, but it seems like this is one of those areas where we're not irrational. Well, it, right? it would require that we're all being irrational every time we're dealing with fiction. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a pretty bitter pill for a lot of people to swallow. Given how much of our time is spent dealing with fictions, mm -hmm. whether uh, watching TV, reading books idly, what have you, this is a lot of our time. This is, in fact, a lot of our spare time and universally. So if we want to just say that we happily accept that we are wildly out of our minds every time we're having an emotional reaction to fiction, then sure, we can do that. Maybe we're not wildly out of our minds. Maybe we're just <laughs> sort of out of our minds. So we're, so we're mildly deluded. <laughs> we're mildly deluded. That, that would seem to be an option, but it, I mean, it doesn't seem true. I mean, if, if you're reading a book and you're having uh, a, Anna Karenina's life is heading downhill, mm. it's crapping out entirely, and you're, you're stressed, you're worried about her, you're pitying her, whatever your emotion is, and I say, do you believe Anna Karenina exists? You'll say, well, no, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> So she's an the character in a book. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So you don't seem to be having a, a, this ongoing moment of irrationality, of uh, mild delusion. You seem to be in your right mind. Hmm. This seems to be a normal thing. In fact, we say to people who aren't having strong emotional reactions to really emotional works of fiction, tragedies, and so on and so forth, that they have a problem with them. This doesn't seem like the sort of thing you want to cure somebody of. Yeah. Whereas if somebody is um, really having an irrational emotional response, if they have a phobia, right? Uh, some a very close friend of mine is deathly afraid of um, sloths. Well, that's and, something to be afraid of. Yeah. Well, they have claws. They're, they're really nature's evil claw. clown. Uh, yeah. I can I believe that. But this seems like she's, she happily knows that these things are not going to get her. Mm -hmm. They move far too slowly. They're, they pose no danger, and this is something she recognizes. She's just kind of irrational. Hmm. But this doesn't seem to be the case for everybody dealing with fiction. Hmm. What do you think of all this, Kevin? I don't know. It's not something I've considered before, um, and it's intriguing me because, well, I'm far from a rational human being. I, I do encounter lots of fiction, and it's one of those situations that I deal with when I'm writing as well. That you know, I'll have characters that are, you know, that I'm I'm I identify with, or I'm angry about, or something when I'm writing, and then I have to step back and say, I'm inventing all of this. I'm I'm basically like making myself angry or upset or happy, with with no acknowledgement of the real world. You know, I can sit and do that for hours on end with you know, no actual reality there, and that's it is intriguing to me why. We do that. I don't so, know. For you, then, it, it seems like it's sort of a willful ignorance, right? You're you're willfully suspending suspending your disbelief, right? I mean, you're you're. you're it goes beyond that, though. I think. Well, suspension of disbelief is the term that tends to get thrown around the most. It's yeah. A, it's a term we happily use, but it's it's a really amorphous term. It's I've I've yet to see anyone su successfully describe what this is in a way that does away with the paradox of fiction. You don't want to say that suspension of disbelief is just belief. I mean, Kevin, you don't believe when you're writing these stories that you now have access to this other world and you're just uh, writing down what's happened there. 
Yeah, no, that's not what I think. And I think it's, we, we don't want to say that we're now skeptical about the existence of these things, which would be, you know, suspension of disbelief is not quite belief, it's not quite disbelief, you're on the fence. Yeah. And this isn't skepticism, you're not waiting for some weight of evidence to push you over one side or the other. <laughs> you know these people aren't real. Is it self-deception of a sort? Well, that would be okay if we want to accept that we're deluded. Mm. Which seems like something we don't want to accept. Well, but, it, it's, a, it's a bitter pill. It seems like there should yeah. be a distinction, though, between willful self-deception and inadvertent self-deception, right? Sure, and here's the distinction. So the, the second premise that I told you about is we know that fictional objects don't exist. Right. So somebody could deceive you. They could lie to you. You could think this was real, in mm -hmm. which case it goes away. Yeah. Right? If you think you're watching a documentary and it's not, so a lot of people were fooled by Blair Witch, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, there's no problem there. These people think this is actually happening. They think there is such a being mm -hmm. out there. And so, okay, so that's not a problem. But that's not the case with most fiction. Mm. So what, what happens when you normally try to solve this paradox? Is it a matter of maybe disproving or rewording one of the premises so that the, the paradox goes away? Right. Like sort of the, the believe that they exist thing is what initially caught me. It's like, well, exist in what sense. Good. You know? Okay, so most people have attempted to deal with it. Well, the first problem is if you want to get rid of the paradox, you have to get rid of one of the premises. Mm -hmm. um, and every premise has been attempted. Because mm -hmm. if you can't do that, you have to throw up your hands and say we're just being rational and that's fine. You Whee! can't just say, exactly. <laughs> you can't just say there isn't a paradox here in this sort of loose sense of paradox. Mm -hmm. So Everybody's attempted to take down one or more of these premises, but at the same time trying to explain the other premises. Yeah. So the, the thing still makes sense. So one attempt is, uh, there's a lot of sort of half-hearted attempts. One is to say, well, you're not really having an emotional reaction. So premise three, we have strong emotional reactions to fiction. Mm -hmm. You're having something else. It's, it's often called the shimotion approach. Well, it's <laughs> shimotion. not an emotion, it's a shimotion. <laughs> and it's because you don't have a belief, you have a shmalief. <laughs> belief, emotion, shmalief, shimotion, no problem. And this, it's, an, it's a nice sort of elegant way to approach the problem, but it would be really weird that these things that I feel like... I still cried Harry Potter 4. Yeah. <laughs> well, that these things that we feel are pity and, and fear and so on... Well, they're not because you're dealing with a fiction. Mm -hmm. And it's... But for a lot of people, they are. I mean, they're, they're as genuine an emotion as you would feel toward if, an actual person if it were happening. To they're certainly going to tell at you that. At least within mm -hmm. that time frame. You know, right. They may look back on it and say, oh, well, you know, maybe not, but... Well, there are little differences. Yeah. Um, so you go and see a horror movie. Are you a horror fan? No, not uh, enough horror fans. Quite the out opposite, there. actually. I'm, I'm a budding horror fan. I've, <laughs> I've found some interesting films recently that I've enjoyed. I don't like the 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 saw hostile sort of direction no, a lot of horror, horror, horror films have gone. Yeah, not torture my cup porn. of tea. But I just picked yeah. up. Um, and it's kind of interesting because it's it's sort of a semi documentary. Uh, Behind the Mask: The Rise of Leslie something. That is, it's set up as a documentary documenting the methodology of this slasher fix sort of a character, Michael Myers-esque character. Right. And kind of going into his mindset. And over the course of the film, the, the crew is kind of like, are we really just sitting here, like, documenting this? He's planning to murder, you know, ten people. And then at the end it switches to a traditional 
film format, but it was it was an interesting film, and it wasn't just you know jump out and scare you or you know throw lots of gore at the screen. Sure. Well, part of the problem is this. Uh, you see a horror movie, you describe yourself as afraid. Mm-hmm. Somebody asks you, are you afraid? You say, yeah. But you're happily sitting there munching on popcorn, drinking your soda. This is not the sort of activity that one performs when one is afraid. <laughs> yeah. So there are differences like that. There's a difference of how long it lasts. So, you know, I, I walk out of the Jackie Chan movie, and I think I can kick everyone's ass. <laughs> right. right. And that's fine, and I just want the muggers to come after me. Um, uh-huh. Likewise, I walk out of a horror movie, I might be um, a little more nervous about walking down dark alleys. You walk out of a, a, out of a weepy girly flick, uh, and I like these, and you're a little melancholy afterwards. But this mm-hmm. doesn't last so long. Right. Whereas if you've just been told about the death of uh, somebody you know or um, you've just witnessed a a real horrifying effect, this can be traumatic. This can last for years. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference there. So ideally, whatever your answer is to the paradox of fiction, it should be able to explain these differences as well. Mm. Even though the person currently reporting it will say, I'm so sad or I'm so afraid or what have you. So there's something hmm. about the epistemic access, perhaps, that we have to our own emotional states. Go, to elaborate and, a little bit more on that for folks who don't understand um, exactly how the epistemic problem works out here. So. Well, I mean, the problem is this. Somebody watching a horror movie will describe themselves as afraid. Mm-hmm. Somebody watching a... Uh, but, they, but they may not accurately describe it as, I, I am afraid in this context, in these ways, in X, Y, Z. I'm just afraid. Sure. This is just sort of a basic primary response to the mm-hmm. question. Or I'm, I'm reading a really sad story. I'm so sad. sad. And, I mean, there are going to be things that go along with this. Mm-hmm. You'll have the Kleenex nearby. Wipe your, wipe your tears and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there are symptoms related to these emotional responses, if they're not emotional responses or whatever <laughs> our possibility is here that don't match up, they don't link up, they're perhaps not as strong, uh, or they don't have some of the more primary symptoms. You, you don't have, you're not compelled to get away if it's a, mm. a fear response. Um, it doesn't last as long, it doesn't have the same sort of reverberations. So while we describe it in the same way as we would uh, an emotional response to a real world case, it doesn't actually seem to link up that way. There seem to be symptomatic differences. Mm-hmm. So some people have attempted to exploit that in their explanations. I want to kind of ask you about, uh, you said the distinction between, we would consider someone who does not have um, the proper emotional response or any emotional response to fiction that is, you kind of hinted at it, but like subjectively by the majority of people considered to elicit an emotional response under normal conditions. To to one of these fields anyway, yeah. what about the problem of desensitization? So, you know, someone who watches a lot of horror films will start to see patterns and such and how, you know, when the music gets creepy, you know, probably um, you know, scares coming up or when the music goes away, there's probably a jump scene that's about to happen and then they sort of, they don't have the same amount of fear maybe as someone who hasn't gotten used to that. But that sort of, a, of an adjustment is different 
from someone who just doesn't have any emotional response whatsoever? Or I'd, I'd think so. I mean, I'm basically dead inside. I, wa I watch <laughs> horror movies, and I have very little effect on me. I enjoy them as a, as a piece of art. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you actually point at something that's intriguing. So, okay, we have some desensitization, sure, and that's fine. But there's another side to that same coin, which is, why is it if you're the sort of person who's scared by horror movies, made sad by um, the weepy girly flicks or whatever, why is it that you can go back to that same work and have the same reaction, even if to a lesser extent? So you go back and watch the same horror movie again, you're still afraid. You watch uh, you, or you read the same sort of romance novel, you're having the same emotional response you were before. You already know how it ends. So ideally, we should be able to explain this as well. Mm -hmm. Why is it that when uh, I watch a horror movie, I, well, there's two things going on here. If I'm the sort of person who goes and sees them in the theater, everyone knows these people, yelling out advice at characters on the screen. <laughs> don't go in there! Right, don't say you'll be right back. Don't go up the stairs. Don't split He's up. right behind you! Right. So there's a, the sense in which you want them to get away, but, of course, you went to see a horror movie. You would be horribly disappointed if there wasn't a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So we seem to have conflicting emotions, too. Hmm. Uh, and especially, yeah, I mean, in, in uh, chick flicks and romance comedies, uh, the whole idea of, you know, why are you letting him do this to you? And, you know, how can you not see through his lies? And, yeah, but, of course, if you didn't want that, you wouldn't uh, have seen it in the first place. Right. You know, you were getting. You're watching. It's... I don't know. I'm 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 almost I'm stumped by this. I mean, I'm I'm <laughs> well, dealing Tyler, with it. And you must have considered this at some point in the past. I mean, consider. I must have, to but I don't know that I did, or, or that I I did in any meaningful sense. Because I'm I mean I'm thinking about I'm a, I'm a movie buff. I own hundreds of films. Yeah. And I watch them repeatedly. I mean, I, I own them because I like to watch them, and I do have you know the same emotional response every time. And I mean, my only my only thought is, you know, kind of falling back to willing suspension of disbelief. It's the the illusion of the first time. I'm I'm choosing to experience it for the first time, but I'm I'm I can't even convince myself of that because I will happily quote along dialogue in some of my favorite films and still have those emotional responses. Like, there's no way it's the first time. So the problem it's, with something like uh, willing suspension of disbelief. Is how does this do away with the paradox? Ideally, it should have some explanatory sure value. Sure. And, and how is that supposed to be fleshed out? Well, that's it. So yeah. some people think about illusory beliefs. It's kind of like belief. Mm -hmm, because right. clearly the belief is the tension here. It seems to be. So it's the suspension of, of complete belief. Or it's the willing partial belief. Or well, something. and this is a thought, right? So I have, a, <laughs> I have something like a half-belief. This should be great. This has uh, some explanatory value because I have a half emotional response. Yeah. Right? I don't run from the theater, but I still have my, my heart rate increases. I sweat. I scream out involuntarily. Uh, this, this might seem to have some explanatory value, but at the same time, this would mean that you are mildly deluded. And if I ask you, if I interrupt you and say, do you actually believe this is happening? You'll say, well, no, of course not. I know it's a movie. Right. I know I'm sitting mm -hmm. in a theater or I know I'm reading a book or what have you. But it seems it seems so odd that that belief could be a matter of degree. Um, may, maybe I'm just trying to conflate it with truth value, but it seems like it should be either you believe something or you don't believe it, mm -hmm. and or you're on the fence. On the fence is allowed. 
Mm-hmm. But are you really on the fence when you're watching a movie? I mean, are you well, sort no. of weighing like whether I should believe that this horror <laughs> film is real or not? I mean, that's that's not the case. So this is like a fourth truth state. Sure, and um, I mean we can compare, right? There are cases where you're on the fence. Mm-hmm. So you go and see, since we're talking horror movies, Amityville. Now it it tells you rate it when it begins. This is based on a true story. Uh, but we've talked about that before, right? But you're suspicious. Yeah, well, so did Fargo. Right? This is clearly Hollywoodized and so yeah. on. So is it really how much? Here's a case where you're on the fence. Mm-hmm. You're not sure. This may or may not be reporting things about the world. And it may or may not just be made up. Right. So here's a case where you're on the fence. But if you go and see um, s- some other movie that you're just well aware of fiction, you're not on the fence. You know this is made up. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. And I, uh, the only thing uh, I can do is, is sort of compare it to my own experiences. But... <sighs> Particularly, particularly with horror films, and and sometimes with you know romantic comedies and such, um, I, I will have very little emotional response to the characters. It'll be very much a, a you know, even the first time through, a very, a very meta enjoyment. Sort of looking at, oh, you know, what is the director doing with this? You know, what plot elements are having? Like you said, sure. e- examining it as a work of art. I mean, is this is this a distinction between? Uh, you know, higher and lower faculties. Are we going mill with this? Or, well, you know, here's what's, here's what's the distinction. The operative thing here. The question is, what's the object of your emotion then? Mm-hmm. And there's two things. So it sounds like in these cases, the object of your emotion isn't the characters. It's not the fictionality. It's not the story. It's the artifice. It's the structure. It's the work per se. Mm-hmm. That's not a problem. You believe that thing exists. Yeah. You know, that's that's not I've an seen issue. It. You believe there is a film. It was created by this writer and this director and this editor and so on. Mm-hmm. No problem. But you don't believe there's a Michael Myers. Right. That's where the problem arises. Mm. Or an uh, anachronism. Kathleen in chat brings up uh, the Stanislavski uh, emotional recall sort of situation. Hmm. Um, where, with Stanislavski's earlier works... Um, for actors, he, he said, you know, it's important for an actor to feel emotion on stage that, mem- that is similar to whatever they're supposed to be portraying. And so they would imagine and remember a time when they had felt said emotion or something like that and are, are meant to bring that up and be able to call up that emotion. I mean, it's, it's possible this is a similar sort of thing. It's, it's a, a, you know, a sympathetic response to these fictional characters. It's, it's the, the, Things in the film remind me of a time when I was scared or when I was sad or when I was happy. And so because I remember that, I start to feel that emotion. Okay, so it's, it's a possibility a lot of people have run through. And it seems to have a lot of legs to it. Uh, so I was watching Gran Torino mm. yesterday. Good movie. And it was really making me think of my dad. And thinking of my dad, uh, perhaps someday if my mother dies first, my dad will be all alone. This is pretty much my dad, very much a get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. <laughs> and that was, you know, I was going through a bunch of emotions thinking about that. And this would ex- seem to explain away some cases. So what I'm doing when I'm dealing with a fiction in these cases is thinking about my own life or somebody near to me and so on. And sure, that works. But on the other hand, let's say you're reading... Oh, I don't know, Harry Potter. Ever read any Harry Potter? I've read all the Harry Potter. Great. Okay, could you do them all in one sitting? Any of them in one sitting? I've done most of them in one sitting. Wow. You're a hardcore. I am. Okay. Well, there's, there's going to be a lot of works where... So I'm an insomniac, and the only way I can get to bed at night is to read for an hour. 
get my mm -hmm. mind off my own troubles to be able to fall asleep. And so I'll read, you know, a few chapters of a given book. And then I'm excited to get back to that book, not because I'm excited to get to sleep, but because I want to find out what's happening to the characters. So uh, right now my, my reading is uh, the new Stephen King book, Under the Dome, which is 1,074 pages. Ooh. This is not a one-sitting book. But <laughs> I want to know what's going to happen to some of these characters. I'm excited about them, anxious about them, and so on and so forth. Well, I'm not anxious about my father. I'm not anxious about myself. I'm anxious about this character and what's yeah. going to happen to them. They're who I'm worried about, or they're who I'm sad about or frightened for or whatnot. So while the idea that, at least in some cases, I'm thinking about someone else entirely seems fair, it seems that you're not really attending to the fiction in those cases. You're using mm -hmm. the fiction as a prop to attend to something else in your own life. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. That works for some cases, but it doesn't seem to work for all of them. In fact, it probably doesn't seem to work for the majority of them. Um, so it yeah. works well for a Stanislavski sort of uh, method acting approach, mm -hmm. but doesn't seem to work as well when dealing with my worries about that character. I'm worried about Anna Karenina, not myself in that situation, or not my mother, or not... It's that character, that person that I know is fully not real. Hmm. It's a paradox. It's darn close. <laughs> this, this hasn't been... Solved by by any stretch of the the word has it <laughs> there, there, satisfactorily at least <laughs> there there are some theorists who I think get closer than others um, basically half half the estheticians since Colin Radford have attempted to solve this thing mm -hmm. uh, some to greater or lesser degree some with wackier theories than others some with theories that seem really palatable until somebody comes along as per philosophy and whacks the crap out of the theory and you realize it sounded really good but it's got problems of its own. That doesn't work. So like I say, people have tried to take down every one of those. Um, and there's, there's work being done, say, in the philosophy of mind that would seem to be trying to do away with the first one that we actually believe that the objects of our emotions exist. Mm -hmm. But emotions are difficult things. They're so very tricky. We have a current emotions. I'm currently afraid. We have uh, dispositional emotions. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid of sharks might be a true statement, but I'm nowhere near a shark. Mm -hmm. I'm not in a state of fear. Mm -hmm. Land shark. <laughs> no, yeah. You can't fool me. You're not the land shark. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so there's th some moves being made there, but we, we are having something like a, a physiological, psychological reaction to something that we know doesn't exist, and so it still floats there. Let's go with the option that you said was, was sort of prima facie unpalatable. Okay. Um, we're irrational. All right. Um, I, I forget exactly who wrote the book on this recently, but there, there actually is a book called Predictably Irrational, um, a sociologist slash statistician, I think, trying to sort of capitalize on the whole um, Freakonomics bent. We came up, out with this book that was essentially a summary of studies showing how... Dan Airely. Huh? Dan Airely wrote yeah, Predictably Irrational. Dan Airely or Irely or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Dan, I can't Dan Ariely. There we go. Dan Ariely. Okay. Um, Jewish guy, actually. I think he went to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. But um, putting that aside, we like to go on rabbit trails on bad philosophy. So <laughs> if we go off on something, it's perfectly fine. Nay, encouraged. Um, he 
published this book about how he, humans basically will predictably make the irrational decision. Um, you know, making something free makes it ten times more appealing than if it costs a cent or you know a dollar or something. Which you know, why is that the case? Um, we consistently make irrational choices. We are irrational beings. Was was essentially his argument. Who like to think that we are rational um, and hold rationality in sort of this high regard? Is it so bad that maybe irrationality is part of our makeup? Um, you know, for you know maybe biological reasons, uh, maybe for practical reasons, we simply choose to be irrational, or not even choose. We are irrational and. We try to we come up with these paradoxes because of that. Well, I mean, the the funny thing is, you you misspoke there and said we choose mm. to be irrational. Right, I, I didn't mean that exactly, <laughs> but, but, but we are. It's quite yeah. telling mm-hmm. um, because rationality seems to come down to something like choice. Hmm. So, as standardly considered, we're being irrational if we don't act according to our beliefs. Now, you might have a belief that is um, an unwarranted belief, mm-hmm. or you might have chosen to not look at all the evidence. And we might describe you as being irrational then, but the sort of irrationality that's at the basis for the paradox of fiction is that you are seemingly acting according to your beliefs, which is fine. You're, mm-hmm. you're acting in a reasonable way. So the example you brought up, you, uh, you act in a way that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but it meshes with your beliefs. So for whatever ridiculous reason, you believe that something is going to be worth more because it costs more, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, okay, well, it's not irrational if you're acting according to beliefs that you actually have. Our problem that we have in the paradox of fiction is we have clashing beliefs. And that's, it's to hold two things that can't both be true. And sometimes we do this. We do this a lot. But now that we have the paradox put before us, now we have to deal with it. Yeah. So... We could just flatly say we're just being irrational, and that's fine, but that seems to be to give up on the problem. Mm-hmm. It's, it it's not working the problem. Position. It's going away, going around it. Uh, but than... was it only a problem because we expected ourselves to be rational in the first place? I mean, that it just it just sort of seems like it hinges on that. Yeah. You know, if it's a, it, whatever our presuppositions are going in will determine whether it's a paradox or not. Um, if it's perfectly okay that we're irrational, then paradoxes are inevitable. All right. Um, <laughs> are you, know, are, are you willing the, to accept that we're just being I, irrational? I, I kind of, I kind of want to lean that direction because we we try our best, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I and I, I think that we just we don't have control over certain levels of our minds, and that in fiction is one of those areas where Good. we we choose, but maybe not at a very high conscious level to work within a certain framework in that context because it's a benefit to us or because it's how we're wired or you know for whatever explanation. We're just irrational. All right, you've solved the problem. Yeah. So thank you. All right, we can go home. Bye everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs> have a good evening everybody. Here's the problem <laughs> yeah. uh, with with the approach you have. Which is to say that when you're reading, when you're reading uh, a, a Batman comic, when you're reading the nerd pamphlets, do you read the nerd pamphlets? I don't. I do. Yeah. I read the nerd pamphlets. You read the nerd pamphlets? Yeah, have, you been reading Kevin Smith? have you been reading Kevin Smith's run on Batman recently? It's uh, pretty good. No, not recently, but let's talk Batman. 
Okay, so okay. when you're reading a Batman comic, do you believe that Batman exists? At no point in time do I believe that Batman exists. Okay. When, when you're I watching a horror movie, mm -hmm. do, you, do you believe that Michael Myers exists? At no point in time do I believe Michael Myers exists. All right, then the paradox <laughs> hasn't gone away because it seems that you haven't gone away with this clash between beliefs. Mm -hmm. you, you don't believe this uh -huh. character exists. And if you did believe that, and it was true that you believe that the objects of your emotions exist, then we have a clash. You could just say, yep, for brief moments in time, mm -hmm. I, I fail to know that Batman is not real, and then I'm being irrational. Hmm. But in this case, you don't fail to know that. You continue to know that Batman nope. is just a character created by Bob <laughs> Kane and being written, in this case, by Kevin Smith. This doesn't go away. So I think Plato dealt with this when he was talking about um, virtue, right? I mean, why, why people who know the virtuous act and still don't do it, why? I mean, why, why they, do they forget, you know, when they're... You know, say there's a piece of cheesecake. This is the announce, or the um, analogy that Dr. Kurzer used in his class. Say there's a piece of cheesecake. You know, you're you're trying to keep the pounds off. You know, you know that the cheesecake has a lot of fat in it, has a lot of calories, and you look at it and you know that but if you delicious. eat it, you're gonna, you're yeah, it looks delicious. But you know that if you eat it, you're gonna get fat. But it looks delicious. You want the cheesecake. You don't want the cheesecake. Right, and you eat the cheesecake, <laughs> and then right after you eat it, you go, I shouldn't have done that. Cheesecake in, remorse. In the, mo in the moment that you eat the cheesecake, did you forget that the cheesecake was going to make you fat? Did you forget your desires? Did you, did you forget everything that you know, was, was causing you pause? You know, what's going on there? And, well, and I think that's ultimately what Plato comes up with, is, is this sort of uh, you know, momentary forgetfulness, right? Or is that purely just, just what well, he uses? Well, it's, it's certainly an option. I mean, you, you do have conflicting desires in that case. Mm -hmm. you, you desire the, the, the delicious taste of cheesecake, and you desire not to continue to get love handles. So you've got conflicting desires, and, well, either you've chosen one or you've flipped a coin or one was stronger or there's some option going on here, and that's, that's fine. That's mm -hmm. an option. Um, what you seem to be pointing towards is another option that's been thrown out there for... Um, the paradox of fiction is simply to say that very briefly, for very brief moments, you forget that you're just dealing with a fiction. Yeah. You forget. Very brief, and perhaps so brief you're not aware it happens. So it might be even a subconscious thing, mm -hmm. and during those very, very brief subconscious moments, that's when you yell out at the horror movie. That's, uh, that's, that's when uh, you start crying as a result of that. And, hey, maybe we just don't have access mm -hmm. to that. Another, it seems palatable. Another option, though, and this is, this is sort of we, where we went with the, um, the problem in, in uh, Plato, is that when we seem to be making that decision about whether or not to eat the cheesecake, it's, it seems like we're making a value judgment. You know, we're weighing the value of staying thin, uh, non love handle or love handleless um, versus having that enjoyment of eating that that wonderful cheesecake sitting there in front of you and what ultimately might be happening is that we're sort of trying to compare two things that are incomparable incommensurable um, that there's not just one standard of value going on whenever we make value judgments that there are value judgments for one field and for another field and for and you know when we try to compare them well they're not comparable 
It's like, would you rather, would you rather have your dad or eat a piece of cheesecake? You know, how are you supposed to compare those? Maybe the same thing is happening with beliefs in this in this case of of the paradox of fiction. There are certain beliefs that operate in normal life, and there are certain beliefs that operate in the fictional realm. And in one sense, we do believe in both cases, but there are different sorts of of belief happening. I wish I could flesh it out more explicitly, but it seems it seems to be that same sort of. Well, now you're going to need some sort of doxastic taxonomy right. to be able to deal with these different sorts of beliefs. <laughs> Which I don't think I can do in the time that we have tonight. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's an interesting thought. Now, to compare this back to your Plato example, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with cheese cake and you're trying to decide whether to blah, 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 you have, mm-hmm. confi- you have conflicting values. Yeah. So the comparison here would be something like you've got conflicting beliefs. Mm-hmm. And how do we deal with conflicting beliefs? We deliberate. And we try and decide, mm-hmm. based on the evidence available, well, I, they can't both be right. We've got this thing going on, this thing going on. I know they conflict, so I deliberate on the issue um, and try to come to some sort of reasonable belief here. Mm-hmm. There's no deliberation going on in dealing with a fiction. At, at no point do you think there's any possibility that there's, there's a real Michael Myers, and he's trying to hunt down whoever Jamie Lee Curtis was playing. Um, <laughs> it's not a deliberative issue. You're well aware. So, Are you well aware the entire time, though? The, okay, like it so seems, this is the it momentary like we have that, that degree of awareness. Okay. You know, we, we, have, we, have the two, we have the two horses, as you were, um, <clears throat> as it were, pulling you in the, you know, in the rational direction, in the, you know, this is all fake, false... Um, You've been spending a lot of time myself. in Dr. Kirsch's class. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, or you have the, the whole, um, you know, <laughs> I want to get into the emotion of this story. I want to I enjoy this. These are, these are real characters, you know, quotation marks, air quotes, whatever. And there's just sort of pulling you in the two directions. I like playing for chess. Also sort of the platonic idea, you know, the, the two horses pulling the chariot mm-hmm. in the Phaedrus, maybe? I think so. Yeah. Um, is that also a possibility? Like, you really, you really don't have conflict conflicting beliefs necessarily, but you have two kinds of beliefs pulling at your consciousness or whatever. You Great. Want so you've got it. a belief and a shmelief. <laughs> okay. Back so we've this. come back to that idea. Uh, <laughs> so we've, we've how does that full circle. Go us. <laughs> well, I mean, what do you think of that, Kevin? Is that satisfactory or is it something else? Um, I don't know. I mean, no, we've kind of made our way through all of the various options. Oh, and... no, we have. <laughs> okay, what are, what are some well, we haven't considered? Some of point? the various options. That, that might move us farther. <laughs> okay, well, the, the first thing, uh, it, it kind of knocks into the idea where you said you want them to be real or something like that. Mm-hmm. Certainly you need them to be realistic in order to respond emotionally to them. Mm-hmm. If, it's, if it's just a boring story, you're going to throw that. You don't care about the characters. Right. There's something to that. So realistic, yes. Real, no. Um, <laughs> one option that was, uh, that was thrown out there, one of the first people to respond to Radford's initial challenge was a philosopher named uh, Eva Shaper. And Shaper says that, okay, you, you believe that Batman exists. You just believe that Batman exists as a fictional character. Mm-hmm. We can make true and false statements. There's all sorts of work mm-hmm. been done in the ontology of fictional characters. 
So, okay, you believe there is such a thing as Batman or Anna Karenina or Sherlock Holmes. They're just fictional characters. Mm -hmm. Fine. So she says, in order for you to have an emotional response, well, let's back that up. Um, Batman is Clark Kent, right? Sure. No. If we're talking Batman about... No. So, sorry, I'm thinking Superman. Superman, Clark Kent. So Bat Batman, Batman is Clark Kent. Is Batman false. is Bruce Wayne. Bra Batman is Bruce Wayne. So we want to be able to say true and false things about <laughs> fictional characters. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> okay, uh, but they're fictional characters. Right, but we want to be able to reasonably say true and false <laughs> things about them. Batman is Bruce Wayne, true. Batman mm -hmm. is Clark Kent, false. Right, right, right. There's all sorts of work to be done there, but we can say true and false things about them. We can have true and false beliefs about them. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we do this? And Shaper says, well, we have to recognize we're talking about fictional characters first. Let's just ground this first and talk about the arena we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if I say uh, Sherlock Holmes had uh, a, a, a crickling, uh, crippling crack addiction, you're going to say false. Uh, he, had, uh, he had an opium addiction. True. Hmm. Okay, so we can do that, and that's fine, but only because we're talking about a realm of Sherlock Holmes stories. Yeah. And we know this. It's implied in what we say. Mm -hmm. So her argument is we do believe that uh, Anna Karenina's life is spiraling faster and faster to disaster, um, that... Uh, such and such a character is uh, endangered by such and such a horrible monster, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And we can have these beliefs because, because we've grounded this in a first-order belief that these things are fictional characters. Mm -hmm. It's the second-order belief that we're responding to emotionally. So this is okay, provided we're grounded mm. correctly. Hmm. So that's Shaper's solution. It's nice, it's pretty, it's clean. So it's it's it about a lot. context. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So we're having contextual emotions. Well, well, you're having contextual beliefs, and you're having emotions in response to those contextualized beliefs. Mm -hmm. So that's an option. Unfortunately, it's, uh, it doesn't work. Um, <sighs> David Novitz uh, slaps the crap out of that one in a couple <laughs> of different ways. <laughs> the first thing he wants to point out is, if you spend your entire time worrying about the fact that what you're dealing with is a fictional character, you're never going to respond emotionally to it. Hmm. So the way that we're able to deal with truth and falsity in fiction doesn't seem appropriate to dealing with emotion in fiction. That's our first problem. The second problem is more of a logical hmm. issue. So he says these first-order beliefs, the belief that you're dealing with a fiction, mm -hmm. essentially contextualizes all the beliefs about the fiction, so that uh, Sherlock Holmes smokes a pipe, uh, Batman is Bruce Wayne, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they say every one of those statements is false as regards the real world. Which is yes. how we're okay. able to contextualize it. Right. But this would mean yes. that, so if the contextualizer places, a, uh, places a, a false label on anything within the brackets, then if something, so... This seems okay. So um, uh, Batman is uh, Bruce Wayne. True within those brackets, false outside, mm -hmm. no problem. So false plus a true is a false, right? Well, false times a true is a false. Good. Okay. Batman okay. is Clark Kent. False. False, false. A false, false. times false is a? False. False in the oh. <laughs> if you falsify a false, you get a true. It is. Which, well, would, which would mean it's true in our world, on Shaper's view, that there is a Batman and he is Clark Kent. Uh, 
Mm. Yeah, that's uh, certainly dissatisfying. Logically, I see how that how you get there. I don't, but it does. It seems wrong to to set up the the truth functional evaluation that way. Well, this is simply one of the views for how to deal with truth statements regarding fictional characters, yeah. and it's the one that what, she was what, adopting. What if you dealt with it more in a in a Wittgensteinian language games type thing, okay. where we're, we're playing different language games when we talk about fictional characters in the real world, and and in some ways they sort of overlap, but they're the truth functional statements in any particular language language game don't exactly translate across to other ones. Well, that's fine, except this doesn't help Shaper then. Mm. So because she wants to say it's, it's a subset of... It's a contextualized set, right. Rather than out, outside of real-world reasoning. Right, so, so a Wittgensteinian uh, approach could perhaps work for dealing with truth statements about fictions, yeah, and that seems to be an option. But that's not our primary worry today. It's just what Shaper was piggybacking on yeah. to be able to get an emotional explanation. Oh, so Shaper doesn't work. Yeah. So here's another option. Kendall Walton has perhaps one of the more persuasive, certainly one of the more famous approaches, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit wacky. But he says, "All right, here's what happens." He has his own view of fiction, and he says, "A fiction is well, it's guided imagination, if you want to think about it this way." So he's got a story about two little boys, Eric and Gregory. Eric and Gregory go out to the woods, and they, they want to play a game, make-believe. Um, they don't have sticks, so they're not going to play uh, cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians. So what they do is they decide that every time there's a stump, the stump is a bear. <laughs> okay, and this is fine. So every stump acts as a prop for their game of make-believe. Mm-hmm. And... It guides their game of make-believe. They come across a stump, bear, ah, run away. Well, he argues fiction works the same way. So whatever it is that the author's given us, be it words on a page or images on a screen or what have you, these act as props that guide our imagination. Following along so far? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they this tell sort of us... This ties in with, you know, you were, you. you were tying things in Gran Torino and with your father and right. such. So, okay. so he was standing as a prop for your imagination about your dad. Right. Now, ideally, he's standing as a prop for an imagination about a fictional character uh, who lives in a neighborhood that's gone uh, to crap and so on yeah. and so forth. But, right, so they guide our imagination in a particular way. Well, Walton argues that... When we're watching, he worries specifically about horror films or centrally about horror films. But mm-hmm. you watch a horror movie, you, it's undeniable that if you're having a good response to a horror movie, it's a good horror movie, then you're having a certain at least physiological response. Your, your heartbeat increases, uh, you're tense, you're on the edge of your seat, you yelp out, uh, don't go up there, involuntarily. Yeah. Well, he says you're having, let's for the sake of, for sake of a better word, uh, call it a quasi-fear. Maybe it's the same thing, maybe not, but let's not risk equivocating. Is it a hypothetical, sort of like, were, the, were these circumstances real, I would react in such and so He's of a He's got a manner? much more fleshed out theory. Okay. <laughs> so he says, you're watching the movie, you're having a reaction, these, this is the sort of data we have to deal with, mm-hmm. so let's call this a quasi-reaction. It doesn't seem to be a full-blown reaction, you don't run from the theater screaming, you don't call the police to warn them, there's a big green slime on the loose, whatever the case <laughs> might be. You're having sort of a, a, a subdued reaction. He says, okay, well, this is sort of a natural response because you're treating the movie as you would any other prop in a game of make-believe in which you'll get excited or you'll have some sort of quasi-emotional response. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he argues what's happening here is you're also treating yourself as a prop. So your internal states, 
your, your anxiety or your tenseness and so on and so forth, those act as props. So you take what's presented by the filmmaker or the author as describing a fictional world. Mm -hmm. You insert yourself into that fictional world as a fictional character who's there witnessing the scene, <laughs> whatever that might be. And as such, you're having this involuntary response. It's not full-blown fear, but he says it's fictionally true that you're afraid. Hmm. In the same way that it's fictionally true that a, character is, uh, that a character in a play is afraid because the actor is portraying them as afraid. He says effectively the same thing works. Mm -hmm. hmm. It's just now we're dealing with an internal state, not an external state. And it works particularly well for movies like Cloverfield, where it's done completely from the first-person perspective of a character, sure. yes, but it's easy to forget that because the vision of the scene is from your perspective, from the first person. Mm -hmm. um, but there, then there would be like degrees of, of separation. from. Well, and there's other problems. <sighs> so if you're uh, reading a or watching sort of a, a, a chick flick sort of story, mm -hmm. and there's some you know, important emotional conversation going on between, uh, say, the, the, the couple in bed. You're not imagining yourself in that bedroom with this additional <laughs> Standing over their beds or just watching them and crying. That just doesn't seem to be what you're doing. That would throw the entire scene off. So he's, he's trying to eliminate the third premise to say you're not, he says you're never actually having this extreme emotional reaction to fiction. It's okay. fictionally true that you're having an emotional reaction. So he's trying to get rid of that. He also thinks the first premise has problems. But it doesn't, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. But this is to say that I imagine myself into these stories. Really? Actually myself? Or you imagine yourself as sort of, you know, wearing a ring of gaijis walking around Middle Earth, um, watching it all, you know, unaffected by anything that's going on, but still sort of there in a sense. You know, you're invisible to the entire world. You don't affect anything. Nothing affects you causally, but yet you're observing it okay. as if it were real. It's, it's still... It, it, it's a, it sounds like a trick, doesn't yeah. it? I agree. And here's the other problem. It's a problem with make-believe, and Walton's big on make-believe. Yeah. Uh, his, his most famous book is Mimesis is Make-Believe, <laughs> where a lot of this stuff has really worked out. And the problem with make-believe is to say that for you to make-believe some, make something's the case, you have to know that thing is not the case. So right now, I can't make-believe you're sitting in that chair mm -hmm. because I know you're in that chair. <laughs> or do you? No. Skepticism mm. next week. I know as much philosophy. as I possibly can. <laughs> I know I believe you're in the chair. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll grant that. It seems that this make believe doesn't seem to do away with belief. So we've got that problem. Um, Walton's mm -hmm. it, he's making an interesting move, but it doesn't seem to describe what I'm actually doing when I'm watching a horror movie or reading a sad story or what have you. That doesn't seem to get us there. What do you think, Kevin's lacking? I don't know. <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> I, I are you can, are you actually confused, or are you just dissatisfied? I'm I'm more dissatisfied. Yeah. I mean, I'm. This this is is bringing up some interesting thoughts because because I think I, I feel that all the three of these premises have truth to them. And so when we try and manipulate and, and kind of bend and flex our way out of them to, to fix the paradox, none of it really rings true to me yet. 
Well, they all seem pre-theoretically true, at mm -hmm. least. So yes. as I listed them yes. off, you probably said, yep, that sounds right. Yep, that sounds right. Yep, yeah. that sounds right. That sounds uh -oh. good. That yeah. sounds good. Um, <laughs> it's sort of like the ontological argument for the existence of God sounds right when you first hear it, and then, then you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounded right for hundreds of years until Kant pointed out a major problem with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, this, folks don't normally seem to have a problem with this insofar as it takes you know, to enjoy fiction. In fact, the fact, is, the reason that they're not really having a problem, a problem seems to be the problem. <laughs> yes, huh. that is a problem. Yeah. Because they should know. Look, look at these premises. So is, I mean, is it that we, we have sort of worked out a solution to the problem in our minds, but we just don't have access to it? Well, for the most part, we're not worried about it. This is, this is one of those little issues that's wor really worrying for philosophers. Right. Um, <laughs> but not so much for the, the average moviegoer. The, the average moviegoer, <laughs> moviegoer doesn't have problems when they're watching movies. Holy crap, do I believe that this is happening? <laughs> children have that problem. We have to remind children that this is just a movie. It's just a movie. It didn't yeah. happen. But we're not reminding ourselves through the whole thing, usually. It's just a movie. It's just, I know that. Mm -hmm. That's not a problem. That doesn't seem to be an issue. If we were, then the problem would go away. But in fact, our, our response to a sad story is sadness throughout. Uh, our response to a, a, a tragedy or a horror movie is sort of this tension and, and pity and anxiety throughout. So we were talking about momentary lapse hypothesis. Mm -hmm. If that were true, we're just briefly, we'd have to be briefly forgetting constantly. Yeah. And that, that seems to lack explanatory value. Hmm. Huh, indeed. I can throw out some more possible <laughs> solutions here. I, you know, we're we're coming up to the we're end right of the time, time on unfortunately. The show, unfortunately, but uh, th this is about what happens on every show anyway. We, we don't ever really come to any answers, which yeah, it's I a think thinker. is sort of the point of philosophy, <laughs> right, Kevin? It's job security. <laughs> yes, exactly. If we if it we were in the business point. of answers, <laughs> I won't say definitively that's no the business. point of philosophy because then I'll have made a declarative statement and you'll agree, you disagree with me. Mm. Yeah. You know, I just got to, uh, uh, Kevin, I, I'm finally going through the radio drama of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, good and, stuff. Uh, I got through the, uh, the point that was curiously omitted from the movie, which I, I think would have been wonderful, when um, the Magrathians are constructing the, uh, the machine Deep Thought, and the Philosopher's Union comes yes. up to them and, and argues against them that this is, this is horrible what you're doing. If, if you find an answer to the, to the <laughs> ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, you know, we'll be, you'll be destroying an entire industry. Um, and their, their reply is simply, well, you know, it'll be going on for 10 million years, so you could make you know, quite a killing in speculating exactly time. what the machine will say. <laughs> um, but yeah, And then, of course, after that, they, they spend, you know, they make even more money figuring out what it means. Exactly. You know, once you've got the answer, you've got to find the question the answer, that matches the answer. Decide what it means. <laughs> it's, uh... So. Yeah. 42 is just an answer. It's just an answer, exactly. Yeah. Well, bringing you non-answers for over a year here on Bad Philosophy, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up today. Um, First off, Kevin, thank you for joining us. You, you were uncharacteristically uh, mute during this episode. Yeah, I know. I'm. I'm. Have we stumped the great Kevin Saunders? Of... <laughs> yeah. 
You're going to go to bed tonight yeah, worrying when, about when the paradox? When you Kevin, you know it's a impressive thing. I know, right? Probably not. <laughs> I have I have to read a lot about Shakespeare in the next 12 hours. I'm, I'm teaching King Lear tomorrow. Day. Good for you. <laughs> there's a, there's I'm, another I'm, paradox. Two of my graduate classes smashed into each other. Hmm. Well, there's another paradox another called paradox? the paradox of tragedy. So look that one mm -hmm. up. Oh, boy. Maybe, okay. maybe next time. We'll get you That'll on in the fun. spring and talk about that one. <laughs> um, Dr. Hick, thank you for joining us on the show. Fascinating, fascinating topic that had just gone completely under my radar up until this point. So um, you'll now have me thinking about this instead of the met metaphysics homework I'm supposed to be doing. Where can people find out more about you? Like, I know you've written a paper on Guitar Hero. You've written a paper about zombies. I have. All in a philosophical context. Are these on your website at the philosophy department? Or um, the, well, the, the one about uh, Guitar Heroes on Contemporary Aesthetics is an online peer-reviewed journal. Okay. Uh, free access, so people could find that one pretty easily. Um, you can just go to my website. And it'll start pointing you in the right direction, www.typetoken.com. Which is? Uh -huh. Speaking of metaphysics. <laughs> I can't believe you actually got that URL. It's, I can't. It's pretty I'm good. really not surprised. Does no someone else. have tokentype.com? I had. No, they didn't. <laughs> and I thought type token flowed better. It does. <laughs> Higher to lower, as it were. Um, but thank you for being on the show. Thanks we for really having appreciate me. you having you here. And we'll direct people to that, that website, of course. You can get in touch with Kevin Saunders, uh, follow him, see what he's up to, maybe see if he's come up with any potential answers to this problem on uh, twitter.com slash kevsond. And uh, Kevin, are you still doing Kevin Review something every day, or have you kind of uh, slacked? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of taken a backseat to, you know, passing grad school. Yeah, that's, that's good. At least you've got your priorities straight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. You can also uh, follow the show here at uh, twitter.com slash badphilosophy. You can follow myself at uh, twitter.com slash storrence, S-T-O-R-R-R-E-N-C-E. And you can buy products from us, including the uh, Viva La Kivalosion t-shirts, uh, this t-shirt, once I decide to make it on the Zazzle store, at zazzle.com slash badphilosophy. Uh, we thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Don't worry, I'll be over when I'm finished my book. I like to go out dancing, my baby loves a bunch of authors We've been living in hovels, spending all our money on brand new novels Well I have to go, I really do have to go read a bunch of various histories about Shakespeare for class tomorrow Yeah and I really do have to go finish a metaphysics paper so <laughs> I got a post-colonial, I got a feminist take on Shakespeare, I got a new historicism take on Shakespeare And an empiricist take on Shakespeare. Wow. Post-colonial and empiricist? How, how can those possibly be co consistent? <laughs> well, no, it's different papers. I've got four different essays that I'm reading. Oh. It's not post-colonial and empiricist. Although, many post-colonials will, will tell you that they are empiricist, but <laughs> it's... Ah! The only ones that don't say they're empiricists are the postmodern and post-structural scholars, and by proxy, new historicism. You're 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 turning into a grad student. I know. I can't do anything about it. Turning pages. Yeah!
Badphilosophy.com. I'm basically dead inside. <laughs>